Fear the Walking Dead, the podcast, an unofficial discussion of the news and events surrounding Fear the Walking Dead with Quinn Warner, Stephen Payne, Bruce McGee. All right, is everybody here? Yep. All right, great. Quinn, Quinn, why don't you get us started? Okie dokie. I'm Quinn Warner. I'm Steve Payne. I'm Bruce McGee, and this is Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast. Uh, the episode this week was uh, pretty intense, I thought. What did you guys think of it? Oh, it was so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And there were several things going on at once. It wasn't just that there was one yeah. one dominant you know, plot. There were these really several interlocking important subplot. Mhm. And a lot of character development too again this this week. It was really strong on character. Absolutely. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Every everything with Strand and uh Thomas was just like it was so emotional and so sad. Oh my god, yeah, it really was. And um it also drove the plot because um you know Thomas Abigail, right? Is that his name? Yeah, Thomas. Mm -hmm. Oh, and this is episode Sika Kerwas, as the heart. And um, anyway, um, the guy who was technically supposed to be the head of this family um, has died. Yeah. His lieutenant. And so it's going to come down, I think, in the future into a contest between Strand the lieutenant's mother, you know, the the house, yeah. quote-unquote, maid who kind of seems to be running things. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like a mafia family a little, little bit, you know. Yeah. Well, right. You know, I mean, uh, what did y'all think of the compound when they drove into it? <laughs> I mean, it was like... It was obviously very, like, it was very beautiful and all of the characters were like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But as the audience you can kind of like seeing that scene where they're like driving and they see it it's kind of like as an audience member i'm just kind of like oh no like <laughs> <laughs> this is way too good to be true there's got to be something up you know well and I well, it's a false order it's a false order being wrung out of the chaos of the you know the crumbling world right right yeah and you know is this a um a refuge and i mean we've already kind of got the hint that it's not because the very first thing sees people in um, in church, you know, the priest is, um, you know, giving his homily, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, he reveals his doubts, you know, what, what can God's role in this be? Right. And then they take the Eucharist and, um, you know, poison. Get the poison eaters. Um and then there's this theme, you know, that starts with the title, which is, you know, there's this thirst for something I guess for answers, you know, yeah. to make some meaning out of it, for some help to get us through it and and will that quenched in the place that they look becomes the thing that poisons them. Um which I wondered if it was going to go into um so supernatural, like 
flung a curse on them, was she a witch? And that was going to really make me unhappy. Yeah. You know, it would go against the show so far. Mm-hmm. Well, is the is Walking Dead, does it have any kind of supernatural elements at all? Or, I mean, no, how do they yeah, handle the supernatural? All, you know, and this one turned into kind of a Scooby-Doo um, <laughs> you know, answer to what was... Oh, no, it wasn't, you know, the witchcraft. It was poison. Um, which is what you and I talked about it's like the Borgias in that regard it's got the you know even down to the fact that the woman is the poisoner you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) shades of Lucretia Borgia well and um, you know it shows how kind of tough she is the fact that she's able to the fact that she's able to um you know, not only make this thing in its poison, but also put it into wherever they keep the regular wafers. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe maybe she substituted the poison wafers for the regulars. She might have made them and then, you know, baked it in, so to speak. And I hate that modern cliche. But, I mean, she might have baked it into that unleavened bread of those wafers. and then. Well, she, right. She had to bake it into it. But, you know, you wonder what the history was. Like, obviously, when something bad happens, we decided to make her a scapegoat. Um yeah. So she has a bad reputation. There's something that she's been doing in years past that set this up. And so we know that she's kind of the center holding things together. Mm-hmm. The center cannot hold. You know, this, and also just the fact that keeping zombies in the basement. Um, yeah. We've seen that. <laughs> yeah, the variation of the idiot child in the cellar, you know. It's like really, really grim sort of a variation of that. Or the crazy uncle in the attic, you know. Um, yeah. Skeletons in the closet, almost literally. In this, this I, I wonder if they meant that to be kind of gallows humor in a way. You know, I mean, I was kind of laughing when I saw that when I saw that passage, and I thought that's the idiot child in the in the basement. Well, and what it also, you know, kind of uh, crossing over to The Walking Dead. The two yeah. places that you've had this done before were Herschel kept walkers in his barn um, because he couldn't let go <clears throat> and see them as being dead. And then later on, the governor kept walker heads in line in in tanks, like old aquariums. He had just stacked up and he had put like three heads in a tank, and uh, which seems to me a much more efficient method of zombie storage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't need the whole body. Just cut off the head and, uh, you know, uh, cover them with water. It probably smelled a lot better, too. So, um, anyway, it's never worked out well when, when yeah. somebody, you know, couldn't let go and couldn't see them for what they are, which is what this is. You know, she, she's trying to integrate it into her older view of the universe. And I, I wonder about that, you know, the, the role of Mexican spirituality. Um, yeah. Because so far we've been mostly secular people with a few devout people, but the devout people were kind of American and Christianity, one Protestant, one I think Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um in this, um, you know, they've got a whole cult. Uh, how do you say that? Saint Marta. 
Stephen? Yeah, Saint Muerta. Holy, holy death, holy death. Yeah. Yeah, and it's symbolized by the owl, which they keep showing. And, you know, the, and which I, turned up as a token too, the little, the little coin sort of. Right. Like right, the token in the coin, the doubloon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a commonplace in popular fiction, the the token that symbolizes some secret organization or secret society or whatever. Yeah. Well, and obviously Salazar recognized this for something of ill omen because mm-hmm. when the guy asked him to give it to his mother, he threw it into the water. Right. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, there's something ill omened about it. And then um, I think when Nick and Ophelia are out praying, Ophelia's praying, Nick's eyeballs and owl carved into the tree along the same pattern. Mm-hmm. But, I thought that that scene was a little bit funny because uh, <laughs> if it's something like, uh, like Nick, when was the last time? You've been in a church or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> and we all know it was when he woke yeah. up with his zombie girlfriend, because uh, that was a you know defunct church. So. Um, and he actually, when he saw the uh, the carving in the tree of the owl, he started having these like these like PTSD flashbacks. Everything I know. Back mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. Very sad, poor guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, this had to be a, a rough week, Quinn, for the for all the Nick fans out there. Well, and you know, I'm sure she was important to him at some level. Um, yeah. You know, like um, oh, Alicia, her first boyfriend that they left to die in. Right, and they then they had he had drawn the rose, or she had drawn the rose, or something as the symbol of their love and so forth. Mm-hmm. And every now and then she'll still draw it. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's not only like they, like it's not only them like having feelings for their past love, but it's also kind of like those relationships were the last like normal things that they had before oh, they yeah. did. Right. So it's, it's it's mourning for the for the dying society, frankly, and the dying right. culture. I mean, it's that's this whole. Death of po- even the death of postmodernism, I would I would argue. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. This is what we're witnessing here. Not just those literal people, but everything that swirls out from those people. Yeah, and what they represent, which is like you say, Quinn, normalcy. I like that point. <laughs> These are normal, you know, normal teenage relationship. One is, you know, sweet young love, and the other is a little bit older and drugged up and yeah. <laughs> in a shooting gallery, but... Still within the realm of what we're used to as a society, but you know, part of what we've talked about Nick being ready for the apocalypse is the fact that he's already on the margin. But I mean, this was something probably that kind of held him our reality. You know, a person you love, and he's never really had a chance to deal with that. I don't. How long has it been since that first morning? Would you say a couple of weeks at this point? You mean since the first episode? Right. In timeline in the show. Right, right. I would say at least a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's not more. You know, it took a few days to go down the, the coastline, and it took them a few days. Mm-hmm. You know, you had several days that we skipped over when the military came in and held the right. normalcy. Right. right. And then um, there was the holding cell, you know, in the middle of the <clears throat> whatever, sports complex, and 
finally, you know, the escape. So, you know, it's not the next day, but it's not that long either to process something. Um, Let's see. Um, I love the line here. Uh, as usual, I wrote down really kind of telling lines out of the, you know, some of the dialogue, and I wrote down this piece of dialogue. It's great. I'm just a bit sick of it. All the killing. I mean, that's a real understatement, you know. Who said that? I didn't write down the character's name. Who said that? It was one of the guys. Who was it, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. He, go ahead. he was uh he was sitting with um I don't I don't remember her name, but the uh the mother lady. Uh he was sitting with her and she was feeding him secretly and she was uh that was the moment where um right. they kind of they shared a little bit of intimacy and mm-hmm. they kind of Nick kind of gained this new like maternal figure in yeah. that because she was she was listening to him and she was caring about him like immediately within meeting him and so he was able to open up to her about that but it pissed Madison off royally. Well, and it, she was taking kind of a traditional grandmotherly role of being supportive without being judgmental and come here, honey, let me slip you some goodies and you know, uh, mom is still she's still trying to mother Nick. Damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, I'm going to keep him alive if I have to kill him to do so, you know. <laughs> yeah, we must <laughs> we must destroy the village to save it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she's uh there's a lot of anger in Madison that was coming from before all this. Again, yeah. this has a history. She's been dealing with Nick probably since she was what, thirteen, fourteen? Yeah, probably. Um that's when a lot of kids get into that life. And I read an interview with the the actor who plays uh, the mom, Madison, and she was saying, and it was Kim, just a Kim Dickinson. It was it was a storyline. So it wasn't like the whole interview, but she said she viewed that character as sort of like, and I guess it's a character from the the parent series, Walking Dead. But she said I view him, I view her like Rick. Right, right. Rick is the leader of the other group, and. Um, you know, she and Strand are competing to see who's going to be the dominant for and <laughs> the last one standing, leaders. essentially. There have been weak women leaders in the Walking Dead universe, so it's not all patriarchy all the time. Um although they do tend to become pretty darn patriarchal in that role. <laughs> but um yeah, I think um you know, the grandmother kind of figure and She's kind of taking the role. She's mother in this very masculine group of guys. I think they'll probably follow her over Strand. Strand's essentially an outsider. Yeah. And if you remember, um, I wish I remembered her name. I really don't remember. But um, the the lady, the maid. Uh, Louise's mom. She, yeah, uh, she was telling Strand when uh, when Strand had told her that you know he was gonna poison himself to be with uh, Thomas. Right, like a pact, like a pact. Yeah, she 
she revealed him. She was like, you know, I I never thought you were good enough for him, blah, blah, blah. But now, like, now that you're doing this, I was wrong. But I wonder... But that makes me think that uh, if she thought that he wasn't good enough for Thomas, then probably the rest of the household probably thought the same thing. So I would say that if there's some sort of power struggle over the villa... Yeah. uh, Yeah, The the hacienda. (laughs) Yeah. Celia is her name. I wonder... I'm I'm sitting around wondering if that family... I know in our culture right now, uh, if you take out the, and this would I guess would be true in, in Fear the Walking Dead too, but there's a lot of interchange between the that part of Mexico, i.e. Baja California, and in particular the United States in terms of the tourist trade. So there, there are a lot. In fact, there are American expats living there. Um, you know, literally just you know even in the real world, not just in this in this uh, narrative. So I'm wondering from that how anglicized that that character Thomas Abigail is notice the name because they would be saying Tomas yeah right and so that that sounds and I don't know maybe they maybe they're not going to deal with that mystery but why are they pronouncing his name in the in the English sense and not in the Spanish sense you know is he Anglo or is he half Anglo I mean I don't know what the story is Cecilia was his housekeeper when he was young that doesn't mean he was Mexican she could have been you know kind of the quiet little Mexican housekeeper that nobody ever paid any attention to. And gradually over the years, you know, okay, let's move to Baja and set up our thing. And she's actually kind of running, you know, running the, the guys a lot. You know, they mm-hmm. look to her, and especially in the absence of Abigail himself. Mm-hmm. Well, but, that name that name doesn't that, sound like a Latin name either. I mean, it just... Oh. I mean, I, you would expect some Latin or some Spanish-sounding name, and it just doesn't sound Spanish, <laughs> frankly. No, and so I think he's been relying on her as his local lieutenant. Whatever they've got going on, obviously, he's not making his bazillion dollars off of a rather small wine, uh, <laughs> you know, vineyard and wine. His vineyard, winery. yeah. Uh, that's what he spends his money on for. Recreation, you know, it's like a yacht. That's his, that's his walking around money. Yeah, yeah, you know, I just spent, you know, some of my chump change on this place, and it's really nice, and I'm going to live here. And uh, Celia, why don't you run it for me? I, thought, <laughs> I, was, I think she's kind of been in charge of that element of his operation. Mm-hmm. But we're really making up a lot of backstory here. Well, it'd be interesting to see how much they develop. You know, to me, it would be quite disappointing if they don't develop uh, Thomas or Tomas's story. I mean, they really should, I think, or at the very least, you know, tell it through the eyes of Strand. I mean, that was his companion. Why not? That's the fair way to do it to his character, but also it's fair to the to the viewers. You know, it's not a cheat because it would be a pretty pretty obvious plot thread. They just leave dangling if they don't develop this anymore. And it's pretty obvious that Strand really loves Abigail. You know, mm-hmm. he's visibly emotional, right? In a way that only we can really see. You know, he's you know got tears in his eyes if you've got a close up, but he's not putting on a show for somebody else. But to, it finally humanizes his character some. Yeah, right. he's not some, was, he's not some heavy, you know, some old melodramatic heavy who's out to get everybody or whatever. But on the other hand, he's still strand. So after his partner is dead, 
Yeah, I don't <laughs> think I'm going to take that poison after all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, know, I really the, enjoyed that scene, or all of those scenes with Strand interacting with uh, Thomas because it, it did humanize him. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, like even uh, before they actually saw each other, when they had gotten to the church and Strand saw Thomas's uh, truck there, yeah, he just he freaked out. He, right. He's always been this guy who's been really cool and calm, right. and collected, who has almost shown, like, detached, no emotion. you know, exactly, or almost Vulcan-esque in a way. Absolutely. <laughs> and this is like the only. The only like thing that he shows actual emotion for, but You're really right. like it's really like Thomas is the only thing that he cares about. Mm-hmm. So now that Thomas is gone, he's like he doesn't have like any motivation anymore other than surviving. Because beforehand, his like his priority was to go and see Thomas, but now that he's gone, I wonder he could become untethered. Yeah, he could become untethered from reality or something. It's the old quest, you know, find my lost lover, and he's yeah. found his lost lover, and now his lost lover is dead, and where do you go from here? You know, that, that's the end scene, is them hugging and kissing and being mm-hmm. back together. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, no, he got bitten. Um, which um, That points up, too, the essential tragedy of the of the series, or both series, I would assume. I mean, it's it, that you cannot you cannot um, take any body or any any event for granted. I mean, because it may right. be snatched out of your grasp at any moment. You know, life, no is, life is fragile. Yeah, exactly. Life is fragile, and culture is fragile. And um, you know, anybody can be lost at any moment. We're just just. Theoretically, it's true, but on a day-to-day basis, and life in uh, 2016 America, for people like us who live in a privileged part of our society, it's not so much of a daily thing for us, but it's always there. Like any one of us could drive off the road this afternoon. Have y'all ever read any of the? I had to. We, and, and y'all, I bet y'all have seen this in some history texts, but historians have been arguing, particularly over the past few years, about the degree to which human beings in, 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 in the Western world, or at least in Western Europe during the time of the Black Plague or the Bubonic Plague, how close uh, a tie did they develop to their family members because mortality rate was already pretty high. And then you get the Bubonic Plague racing through there all the way really until the Almost to the 16th century, you know, various outbreaks of if it weren't, if it was not the Black Plague, it was, you know, influenza, or if it was not that, it was smallpox, if it was not that, it was something else. It was always the plague of some sort. And so historians have argued about how close people got, particularly to their spouses and their children. Or far, you know, infamously, a lot of people took this as an opportunity to do what they'd always wanted. There are people like, throwing off their clothes and having sex pretty much wherever and whenever they wanted to because right. we're all going to die anyway. We may as well have a little fun on our way out. Yeah. Um, we haven't really come across that option. That would be more of an HBO kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, people doing that a lot. Um, but, yeah, I think also... You know, we've been kind of looking for the metaphors as we go, or I have. You know, mm-hmm. um, what is this 
episode of Metaphor Farwell, the military out of control, uh, the security state turning its weapons against us, stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So what's the metaphor for this week? Um, did y'all have what, was that ti- what was the title again for this episode? Because I think you need to translate it once again. Um, she cut carewoos or curvas, uh, if you prefer, yeah. uh, as the heart. So that you know, this is all about desire. Is the heart pants for the brook? I, I so my heart pants for the oh Lord. I, the quote out of the Psalms, yeah. Yeah, I think that so, a good, uh, a good, at least general theme of this episode is the heart, because um, you have all of the exchanges between Strand and Thomas, mm-hmm. but you also have uh, <coughs> all of the interactions with. Uh, Nick and uh, Cecilia, yeah. and, and uh, but then you also that's something that we haven't talked about yet. You have everything between uh, between Chris and uh, Alicia and Madison and Travis. All four mm-hmm. of them, they're having this big fight right now because of everything that happened. You know, just to refresh uh, maybe listeners' memories. Um, Chris found out that Madison didn't believe him that the guy that he shot in the most previous episode was sick. And so when Madison was in trouble when they were at the church, Chris did nothing. He just stood there and watched. And Alicia Alicia saw that happen. And so she called Chris out on it when they were at the villa. And Chris basically threatened her. He was like, you know, you can't tell anyone. I don't want to hurt anybody and things like that. Chris is escalating quickly because he really is. At the end of the well, in the first the first scene with the priest too. Remember, I mean, he loves that congregation, whether he's having doubts or not. He loves them, right? Uh, and it's a it's almost a mystical kind of thing, just just like with Strand and and and, and Tomas or Thomas. I mean, there love there's something about love that ultimately is elusive, or it, it does not subject itself to human exp- or rational explanation. I'll put it that way. Well, back to Chris, he ends up the episode standing in uh, Alicia's bedroom, and Madison's just happening. She fell asleep there. I think she had a fight over Chris with um, Travis, and and they wake up, and there he is. With a knife. (laughs) With a normal Mm -hmm. look in his face, you know, and a knife. And uh, Alicia's like, get out. But, um, you know, I think we need to be careful with Chris. Uh, I'm I'm not too confident that. He's lost right now. I don't know that he'll stay lost, but yeah. uh, he turned dark really quickly. He really did, but I can't say that I blame him. On yeah, it's his, all that trauma he's undergone, frankly. He, he's been through a lot of trauma, especially everything with his mom, with, with his mom not only turning, but also knowing that his dad is the one that had to, like, kill their mom. Right. And... Mm-hmm. And then everything was like holding her corpse and pushing her corpse into the ocean. He's gone through way too much to be normal right now. So I right. think it's understandable, but from the perspective of the other characters, it's, he's a little dangerous. Yeah, he's and going to be threatening people. And what are our options if he can't be trusted? This is um, another crossover from the original Walking Dead, but. Um, there was this several episodes where um, 
where a couple's got a couple little girls they've taken under wing and a baby. So they're taking care of three kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of them, Lizzie, um, is um, she, she also doesn't see the difference between the walking <clears throat> real, you know, living people. And so she doesn't want to kill them. She tries to make them pets. She feeds them small animals. She catches. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they keep trying to talk to her, talk some sense into her, you know, um, get her to, you know, come back off that ledge, see things the way they really are. She just can't do it. And in the end, she kills her little sister so that mm-hmm. she can come back as a zombie. And and the, the, the couple just kind of look at each other. What can we do? We can't leave her. She would die in the woods. We can't... Um, we can't let her stay here because we've got a baby and she can kill the baby or us. She was already trying to kill the baby when they stopped her, when they found out what she was doing. And so in the end, um, Carol, who's uh, you know kind of a badass, but still has a good heart. You know, uh, Lizzie, the way she calms down when she's upset is she looks at flowers and counts. And so Carol takes her out to the... The, the place where the wildflowers are going and says, look at the flowers, Lizzie. And, and uh, <laughs> while Lizzie's counting, Carol shoots her in the back of the head. You know, what are we going to do with Chris? Are we at the point, you know, look at the flowers, Lizzie, has become kind of a catchphrase. Are we at that, you know, look at the flowers, Chris? Does, does Dad have to take him out? Or can he be brought back? And we don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know the depth of his insanity. People do go crazy and come back. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's a temporary kind of a thing. Yeah. We have to hope it is. Otherwise, <laughs> look at the vineyard, Chris. <laughs> uh, he needs, he needs oh, to man, form a connection know. with someone. I think I think that's what he needs because yeah. at this point, even though he has his dad, He's he doesn't seem to be extremely close with him, and I'm sure that stems from you know his dad not really being there when everything was normal. Mm-hmm. You know then, he lives with his mom and his stepdad, but and then shooting his mother, kind of you know his mom. Right. Was just yeah, sent him over. You know, well, that and the, and the shooting of the the guy in the previous episode. Yeah, it's kind of sent him over the over the brink. It's it's definitely putting a strain on his relationship with his father. What little relationship they had in the first place. If you look at all the other characters. Even if it's only one person, they have someone that they're very close to. Right. I so I think that if Chris can somehow like form a really close bond with one of the characters, I don't know which one. But, well, he had a thing but, last season with Alicia, but of course that's he did. done now. <clears throat> yeah, know, she doesn't trust him. He's been lurking over her with a knife, and you know, from his perspective, this is probably Dad's magic escape family. You know, uh, right? Uh, oh, he left us, so you take up with them. And so, um, I don't know that Chris and I mean, uh, Nick and Alicia are options for him because he resents them because mm-hmm. they're the the new woman's kids. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, he he did refer to everyone as. The family. He referred to it yeah. as as our family when talking. And about he called Alicia. Alicia his sister, but that was yeah. They had this, you know, whatever there was was very fragile, and it only took that little bit of doubt, yeah, to break it. You know, when he killed that guy. 
Mm-hmm. And Alicia was not the one to confront me. You know? um, well, and then speaking of characters going over the edge, let's talk about Salazar. Uh, Ruben yeah. Wattis' character, I mean, that guy. Yeah, yeah well, we wanted to get... <laughs> I mean, that's pretty... And, and I'm, I'm a fan of his. I've been a fan of his since his older work, I think back in the 80s or 90s. I mean, that guy's a top, you know, really top-shelf actor. So what do you all think about where his character's going? Well, he's obviously having PTSD. You know, he's about to yeah. take out one of the zombies, only this is a zombie child, and he flashes mm-hmm. back to that time in El Salvador when he was choking a, a little boy to death. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's he's never processed that. He just, you know, did what a lot of people do, which is you move on with your Repressed life. it, yeah. You, you repress it, and then something <clears throat> like this, he doesn't have, he hasn't worked through it in a way that allows him to be in the present. Right. Well, and the zombies themselves, again, as we've talked, I mean, they are the 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 various problems. I mean, they're figures for that, the various right. problems that our society, frankly, is unwilling or unable to try to deal with. Yeah, Racism, classism, sex, you know, militarism is another another problem. You know, you've got the militarism. Uh, you've got the the ultranationalism, uh, whatever, you know, that whatever we figured out that Salazar was involved with in terms of his death, you know, the death squads. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, uh, you know, kind of blowback for U.S. policy from mm-hmm. 10, 20, 30 years ago because uh, we supported the death panels. Like, as you pointed out, Stephen, we trained. I know yeah, I mean, yeah, you missed that before. last week, Quinn, but we talked yeah. about the School for the Americas, and <laughs> Salazar may have, I mean, who knows, he may have a tie to that. And yeah. they tra- they trained more than their share of right-wing Latin American dictators and or their henchmen. So it's mm-hmm. really, really, really questionable American uh, policy. For, it's know, an for American, life. it's a government-run, kind of like West Point for budding dictators. Oh, over in Fort, Fort Benning, Georgia. Is that where it is? Uh, it's in Georgia someplace, I, don't I think. Know. Yeah, I think it's in Georgia. And it's and it's been protested against uh, the famous uh, Jesuit renegade priest who just died a week or two ago, uh, Daniel mm-hmm. Berrigan. Uh, he has prote- protested there before many, many years ago. Various other groups have as well, or entities have as well. So it's, who knows, Salazar may have some connection. I mean, I think that would be really ingenious to tie him to the School for the Americas. Mm-hmm. Well, and what did y'all think of Ophelia's response this week to her father and what she sees going on with him? She is definitely... Uh, becoming a little bit warmer because in previous episodes uh, ever since she found out what her father does and what he's capable of she's mm-hmm. been very wary and very like distrustful right. and stuff mm-hmm. like that but Res- resentful too I would think absolutely And but in this episode she's she's seeing that it's having an effect on him I think and so and I think she she probably first realizes it when they're at the church mm-hmm. And that boy is trying to, mm-hmm. like, you know, eat Salazar's face off, and she has to save him. And mm-hmm. she, so she watches this man who she knows to be like a ruthless killing machine to just totally freeze up and not be able to do anything. And I think that's when she realizes that, like, you know, he is—he's done some bad things, but he's still human, and he's still mm-hmm. going through something. Yeah, and you know, I totally agree, and I think. As humans, our first monsters are our parents. You know, the, 
mm-hmm. almost like godlike figures who are so much bigger than us. They can mm-hmm. protect us and give us so much, but they're also probably the most dangerous people in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most child abuse is done by the parents. So mm-hmm. they've got this dual thing, and she's seen him as this almost supernatural person, and he's tried to be that for her. I'm the one who will protect you. And so you know, the first thing she that kind of freaked her out in the first episode was figuring out just how ruthless he could be in the pursuit yeah. of quote unquote protecting her and her mother. Now she's got something even more unsettling, which is to realize he's a frail human being and he's got the same weaknesses as everybody else and she may have to you know, that's something that will happen as you grow older. Um, that you realize your parents are only human and mm-hmm. kind of diminished. And whereas the person I was, you know, had all that conflict about, they're kind of gone, and all of that's burned out of them. And, you know, it's just the first step to his. Well, and you and you become your parents because you start seeing things from their perspective as you get older. Well, and she has to step up. She hadn't had to step up. Dad was taking care of it. Dad's frozen. Well, let me. You know, I'm going to step it. So she's got that thing in her that's like him, you know, when it's necessary, I will step up and protect my family, even if it means, you know, um, this eight, nine-year-old zombie child has to die. You know, there's another thing going on, too, talking about the monsters and, and just the idea of the monsters in general. Here you've got the parents being the first monsters, and right spiraling out of that is the natural world, which is, I mean, i had to do some research on that for my last Agent X novel, uh, using this folkloric character as the villain. Uh, and, and apparently it's not really a folkloric character per se. It's somebody exploiting people's belief in a folkloric character, really is what's going on. And, you know, folkloric characters turn to fun and profit, more or less. And this is the same situation here, except that the people's worst fear has become a reality. You know, it's something that is a boogeyman, in the in the person of these walking dead. I mean, what we I guess we go back to our first episode. What are some of the earliest examples of walking dead creatures or creatures that return from the dead in Western narrative? I mean the vampire characters one. Are there other precedents for that? Because it's here's rather the mysterious uh, figure in Greek mythology often taken as a predecessor for the vampire the Lamia. Oh the Lamia, yeah. Yeah, didn't Keats or one of the yeah. romantics write a poem about that, I think? That's right. He kind of brought it back. And, and it's a really ancient, folk, it's a folkloric being, right? I mean, Right. So this thing's got roots as, like the character in my story, it's got roots as old, almost as old as Western civilization is. I mean, really, really ancient characters. Except that these things are all appetite. You know, they're just unrestrained appetite. Right. You know, the original vampires were under somebody's control. They were a metaphor for slavery. Right. Take this medicine and then potion and then do whatever they take. But these vampires don't obey anybody. Right. It's just totally out of control. It's very much so a, um, a, a very applicable metaphor for for your problems and for your life because like zombies, like like the actual literal zombies, if you don't do anything about 
your problems, if you don't face things mm-hmm. and deal with them first, they're <laughs> going to eat you up. They're going to eat you alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. Right. Again, our, and it doesn't have to be personal problems. Again, it can be the societal ills, like racism, right. like classism, like like militarism. Right. I mean, uh, it's, I still keep thinking that's what's going to be the the cause for the zombie plague. It will be some virus that's broken out of a military lab or something like that, and it's mm-hmm. attacked the entire world. So there, you've got this unbridled militarism going on. Right. It could have been. A, a runaway virus that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that was one of these experimental things uh, because, you know, weaponized uh, smallpox, you know, mm-hmm. it'd be even much, much worse than the regular smallpox. Well, just, just in the past three or four years, maybe, it's been very recently, uh, some some uh, virologists resequenced the old virus pretty closely to the one that killed you know, so many hundreds of thousands of people during the Spanish influenza epidemic in 1919 to 1921. And can you believe? I mean, somebody actually went back, resequenced that thing. So there is a version of it. I don't think it's identical to the original, but it's doggone close. So imagine something like that getting out on the public today, you know, with six and a half, roughly six, yeah. six and a half billion people on the earth. I mean, that's pretty scary. You know, that's the whole 12 monkeys. Uh, mm-hmm. If there's somebody in the lab that wants to infect us all, we haven't had that yet, but that doesn't mean it's not where it came from. It's still a mystery. <clears throat> and I think as metaphors go, uh, this week there's, you know, one it's from, you know, our own cultural experience. You've got these, this, um, you know, gay couple, and one of them has this mysterious virus that slowly turning him into a walking skeleton. And it, mm-hmm. you know, I flashed back to the 80s when, um, you know, AIDS was that. Mm-hmm. Um, because where did it come from? What was it? Nobody knew what it was. It was years before. It they, was this mystery, mystery illness. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, uh, it was years before they even identified the virus. Mm-hmm. And years more before they came up with any kind of um, um uh, treatment for it. So, yeah, antiretrovirals know, or whatever they are, yeah. I know in 93 I watched a documentary, uh, Silver Lake Life. Did either of y'all ever see it? What's, what's it called? Silver Lake Life. Mm-hmm. It was a documentary done by a filmmaker who was dying of AIDS. And so was his, uh, I think they called him partner back then. You know, this was long before they could get married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so basically they just put a camera on themselves the last several months. And chronicled their, their last months, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, to me, it was a very powerful kind of documentary because you saw up close and personal, and you're just one-on-one, these two guys and what they're dealing with. Like, um, you know, you see Texas Buyers Club, and, um, oh, who's the guy that was starring in that? Um, I'm not sure. Um, anyway, he, um, he was, he was, he was sick. He was going to Mexico. He was getting pills. You know, it was just at the end that he really got sick. But it doesn't work like that. It takes you, you know, out a little bit at the time or it did back mm-hmm. then. Um, mm-hmm. cause there was no real treatment. And 
you have this very early in the movie they're going to the store trying to buy stuff and they want a trash can just to get average white kitchen garbage can and um but they're in a stack and they aren't strong enough to get the stack apart and so they're sitting there in the middle of the store with things tumped over trying to pull one out it's just awful you know harrowing the wife and you know that kind of is what I thought of when he gets home and Abigail's too weak to get to the bed or okay I will help you it looked like some scenes from that to me mm-hmm. I didn't know if y'all that. Well, that movie Philadelphia that Tom yeah. Hanks made, you remember, and I, I saw that, and that was a pretty powerful film. To me, I think that um, I, I at least noticed the parallel between uh, the scene where, in this most recent episode, where, you know, he's he's helping uh, Thomas into bed, and if you remember the episode where we're first introduced Thomas in those flashbacks that Strand is having, Mm-hmm. Um, that that's what happens when Strand, uh, you know, like steals all of his money, and that's kind of how they like end up together. Is right. Tom, Thomas gets too drunk, and mm-hmm. Strand has to kind of carry him into bed and toss him onto the bed and everything. And it's kind mm-hmm. of a parallel between you know, this is how we started and this is how we. Oh, ended. right. It's book. It's like bookends. Yeah, it's bookends. Yeah. That's very good. It ends similar to the way it. Started. I like that. Yeah, and it's very um, if uh, if you think about uh, episodes in terms of tropes, um, yeah, <laughs> this uh, this one uh, a very common trope, especially lately, is uh, is the bury your gaze trope, and <laughs> Fear the Walking Dead is already doing it. Um, it's basically the trope basically means that uh, basically. As soon as you introduce a gay character, they die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we talked about that last yeah, year with yeah. the, the black. I've been worried about that yeah. that they would that they would exploit they would exploit the whole gay culture. I mean, really, yeah. not use it not use it organically to tell a, a more complex and more human story, but they would exploit it. And I've been really afraid of that. You know. Well, and that happened at the end of last season in uh, Walking Dead. <clears throat> they, they, you know. One of the critical things you need in a zombie apocalypse is a doctor. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. they find this uh, lesbian uh, psychiatrist who nevertheless has been to med school, and she's been slowly learning how to operate, how to do the things you have to do to save people from a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and then one episode she just says, I want to go out. You know, and so she goes out and... Um, you know, a couple of people go with her, but she gets shot through the eye with an arrow, you know, from a from somebody's stolen Daryl's um, uh, crossbow. <clears throat> and, you know, there, that's it. You know, the day that she broke out, the day that she started to really develop as a character was the day she dies, you know. Right. And I, yeah, I just don't like that. I like that's that. a real it's cheat. That's what they call yeah. a cheat, you know. Yeah. Oh, and it's too quick. You know, you want mm-hmm. somebody to be around a while before they die. And you know, she had just gotten started on her kind of development as a character. She's got a girlfriend, you know, and things are going pretty well. And boom, she falls down. and She's gone. Um, mm-hmm. And we've noticed that happening with African American men. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency in these shows, and so far, Strand has beaten both of those. 
Yeah, he's beating the odds. Yeah. Yeah. He's on borrowed time, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if he puts on a red shirt, he's had it, right? All right, yeah. <laughs> because you know, you're right. Yeah, I've, I've been sweating this out, honestly, and I wouldn't say it, but I mean, I just hope that they don't use the gay angle, so to speak, as a as a means to exploit not just the characters, but to exploit the viewers. I mean, the viewers invest their time and effort into these characters, you know, so they, they, they're expecting a payoff. They're expecting, again, a real honest um, exploration of those characters' relationships and so forth. That's that's actually a thing. It's called uh, it's called queer baiting. Mm-hmm. It's when shows kind of set you up to believe that, you know, that, like they're introducing like, oh, this, this character's gay or this, mm-hmm. uh, this character's trans or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, they immediately exploit it where one of them dies or both of them die or you think that they're gay but something happens and they're not actually gay. But it's mm-hmm. just, it's a ploy to have more viewers watch it. So but it's a cheap way to ring emotion and, and viewership, yeah. Right. Well, and, you know, <laughs> traditionally, until very recently, gay characters, first they weren't there at all. I mean, right. You know, Liberace in the 50s uh, somehow managed to get... <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, it was with a lot of denial, and then you get, um, you know, the mixing kind of gay in a comic in a comedy, and sometimes they're really gay. Sometimes, like you say, it's Jack Ritter, and he's just pretending to be gay very badly. Uh, and so having... and Or then you have them where they're heavily rewritten, like the, the character that Tony Randall played in the series Love, Sydney, that supposedly that character was originally meant to be, I think. I mean, this is long before Ellen DeGeneres was, was playing her character uh, in her on her comedy. And they really muted the gay angle on the Tony Randall program, so it he was just more or less just a bachelor, you know. Well, like in the yeah, the odd couple sixties <clears throat> talking about Tony Randall shows. Mm-hmm. He was states as a supposedly straight couple, and to prove it, they have to go on dates every week. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. They're obviously a couple, you know. Um, that's why they have couple in the title, but they couldn't. You know, it's the sixties; it was simply impossible. To... Or seventies, yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, they couldn't do I'm that. Like they couldn't do that. I think it's seventies. I don't. I don't know. Let me. You're probably right. It was in color. Yeah, it's a. Uh, Quinn, we're going way back it's, before It's your based time. on that that old. Uh, I think a Neil Simon play, maybe. But it's yeah. a really. It's considered a real classic seventies comedy. But again, it, it. Well, in another case of that, you have the. The whole when they when they would portray these characters, even if there was no homoeroticism involved, if it was just two friends, they would make a cheap swipe at you know gay people and gay culture. You know, look, Sanford and Sons is a good example. I mean, it's one of my favorite shows. But if any time when there was any any sort of hint of anything about say Lamont and the son and um, his friend Rollo Lawson, I mean, they would again they would make some cheap swipe at you know at, at gay people. I mean, really, and you know, it's they would never get away with that kind of thing today. But that was very common in the seventies. So yeah, I like your point, Quinn. I think it's um, well taken. But I'd, do you have anything more to elaborate on it? I like what you were saying about about just queer baby in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I don't know. It's just it's something that. 
the queer community has to face a lot of because uh, we like all all we want is representation in the media when it comes to things like that. Like we just all we're asking for is you know to have like one gay character, maybe one trans character who is like a good person. Uh, maybe they're even the main character, not somebody who's like a token or is there for comic relief or is there like right. <clears throat> they're and, around, around characters again forced or called and they're not some flat sort of right. stereotype yeah. and we don't really get that and a lot of actually a lot of like straight people will say you know uh in like and honestly saying it in this way like if you believe this you're pretty much homophobic mm-hmm. but people will be like what do like why are gay people getting so mad you know because mm-hmm. right. I, I I see gay characters all the time in media. There are way too many gay characters. What are you complaining about? But people don't realize that like there are it, it literally last year in 2015, mm-hmm. I saw the very first movie that featured a non-straight couple that did not end in like horrible death or like absolute tragedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that what was Carol. That, that, was, that was Carol. I don't know if uh either of you saw it. It starred uh Kate Blanchett and um oh I can never remember the other girl's name, but she was in uh The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She's yeah. wonderful. Rumi, Naomi, Rumi Yeah. Rumi. Yeah it's, something. Um, I know I'm not getting Rumi. quite right. Rumi something, I don't know, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It was a, a wonderful movie. It was beautiful. But the fact that it didn't exist until 2015 is a huge problem, I think. Exactly. I like that. Well, and, and what I you just said, this is what is this parallel? It parallels the treatment of African Americans in popular TV, right? I mean, it's it's, it's a very close parallel. Uh, down, down to the fact of the arguments being made. That, well, I don't see why you're all up in arms. You know, I see. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the this is the voice of the right wing. I'm channeling, but this is what somebody would say. That well, I see enough African Americans on TV already. Well, but try being African American and see how you feel about it. Right. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's a simple matter of identifying with somebody else's humanity. <laughs> That's what this comes well, down to. And I mean, for hundreds of years, this has been the same with uh, women's sexuality mm-hmm. in Western literature. I mean. You go back to um, Les Miserables, and uh, that woman winds up dying bald and toothless in the snow. That's what happens if you have the sex without yep. being in the marriage. Um, you know, it was quite a, um, you know, similar thing. I mean, as kind of proto-feminist as the awakening is. Right. By our Louisiana writer, we might we might so, add. Right. Take chip in, but... But, you know, she wound up drowning herself at the end, and the one that really was transgressive, she wound up putting in a drawer, and it wasn't published until the 1960s. It's a story titled The Storm, where Calixta is married to Bobino, but she's always had this thing for the rich planter down the road, Alcee. And so they get caught in the storm, and they have sex. And at the end of it, he goes home, and she picks the shrimp, and Bobino gets home with their son, and they're all excited about having shrimp, and they lived happily ever after. And, oh my God, the woman had the sex, and you know they live happily ever after. And, you know, this was so radical that she did not publish it in her <clears> time. 
Yeah, that was the one recovered many years later, wasn't it? Maybe LSU or somebody it was published first it or something. Published in the complete works, which is you know in the back shelf of your library somewhere mm-hmm. <laughs> in the 1960s. So now, that's been around a while, Quinn. I mean that you know that kind of thing that you're kind of touching on here. Uh, um, I think it it's just it boils down to representation of minorities mm-hmm. in the media. The fact of the matter is, for ever since the beginning of of media, whether it be literature, whether it be television or, or broadcast or things like that, the the main demographic is the white male. Right, right. And so not only... At least in in the Western world, at least. Anyhow, absolutely, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> right. Well, and, you know, that's where the media developed, what we call the media, TV, radio, right. movies, um, the internet now. But I guess the internet allows more stuff, but it's a lot of times just more of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that's where it, uh, that's just what it boils down to, is that in Western media, if you're not a white man, you're not really getting the representation you deserve, in my opinion. Right. Because forever it's been women aren't well represented, people of color aren't well represented, LGBTQ people are not well represented, and it's just... Well, and poor people aren't either, because to clarify, absolutely. if you're not a white, power, uh, white um, wealthy male... Than, right. than you're going to be because if you're poor, you look at the way that poor people have been portrayed in particularly in TV, and you get a lot of so-called victim uh, shaming, victim blaming. Uh, you're poor, well, it must be your fault, kind of thinking. And so they're portrayed in pretty degrading. Poor people, black and white, are portrayed in pretty degrading terms. If you think about it, though, at least in my frame uh, of knowledge, when you see like. If a poor person is portrayed in media and they're, like, a side character that, like, nothing's really going to happen to, they're just there because they need a poor person for the scene, right. they're, usually, they're usually a person of color. Mm-hmm. But if in a movie you've got this story about a poor person who rises above the odds and goes from rags to riches, they're usually white. And they're usually uh, white. Right. It's the it's the Horatio Alger myth. That's what you know. What it's right. kind of going by, and at least more recently, if, you know. If they're not, then they get there by being a gangster, you know, like right. uh, mm-hmm. Scarface, the the remake of Scarface, uh, you know, where he I think is Cuban. Right, he is. He is a Latino, absolutely, and uh, and he works his way up, but the mafia means and. Uh, so, uh, and of course, he winds up dead in the middle. Of That's the something I'm worried about about the about Thomas slash Tomas's character because I'm so afraid another cheap shot would be to portray him as some Latino who's a drug dealer or who's involved in criminality of some sort. Um, which I don't know. It, that that kind of makes me blanch a little bit to think about that. I mean, I, I mean, it's not to say there aren't people who are Latinos who are involved in crime, but just to make him just to make that association. Like that, without any sort of, you know, critical appraisal of it or whatever, to me, is just kind of problematic. Right. Well, we've already got Latino characters that are portrayed as, you know, being these, like, criminals with Salazar. Right. But, and, um, but we also have something that I really, so, 
so that I'm not like totally ragging on this series for the entire podcast. <laughs> uh, something I really do like about this series is that the majority of the main cast are non-white. Right. The only, yeah. the only white people we really have are Madison and Alicia mm-hmm. and Nick. Right. And everyone else is, I mean, Strand is black, uh, Travis is Maori, uh, Chris looks like, I guess he's half Maori and half, I'm not sure what his mother was. Maybe Anglo of some sort, European, yeah. I thought she was Latino. Latino, excuse me. I I think she was. I think that maybe he was supposed to be Latino at first and then... Okay, they actually got an actor from down there. Maybe we could use that. Um, yeah. Although he talks, he didn't talk with that kind of Australian-sounding. Uh, you mean Tra- Travis's character? Right. Yeah. Travis. yeah, he mutes that. If you go and you know that what is his name? Curtis. His last name is it? Yeah. Curtis. But anyhow, they yeah his his out his Aussie accent's pretty heavy. I mean, crikey, you know, he's <laughs> almost unwalkabout. But, <laughs> but I mean, thank you know he, he's muted that because supposedly he's grown up in the states, so he's not right. got the Aussie accent. But he would have left here early. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't seen more Asian characters who have survived since there is a large Asian population in California. Just that one yeah. woman who's really yeah. pissed off. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. it. I mean, really, but especially you know. Her name. Oh, I remember her name. She was the neighbor, the neighbor lady, right? Yeah, or, she no, was the one from the airplane that crashed. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, I was thinking about the first episode. Okay. Her team, and, um, like, she was an Asian character, but she got killed pretty quickly. No, yeah. she's still alive. Uh, <laughs> well, we were thinking about the character in the first episode, the, yeah, the neighbor. Yeah, the neighbor lady. Yeah. She's dead. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But so maybe, maybe we will have an Asian. In fact, I don't know if we ever saw her alive. We saw her husband alive briefly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure we ever saw her live either, but we def- we saw her zombified and we saw <laughs> Madison like beat the shit out of her. <laughs> I like the awesome, the thing that they add in um, the Talking Dead, the the after show little discussion where they memorialize the <laughs> the people who have gone on, so to speak. <laughs> it's a cheap knockoff of a thing. I don't know if TCM is still doing this, but Turner Classic Movies used to do that at the end of each year. They would memorialize some actor who had died in the months previous, in the year Did previous. Did they play that music that they always play? Yeah, that really hyper dramatic mm-hmm. music. It's pretty cheesy, to be honest. But it's so it's so cheesy. It's actually effective. <laughs> well, and in, in the way they do it, kind of funny. You know, exactly. Yeah, well, they're, they're kidding that whole, that's a, that, they're kidding that whole, kind of a subgenre almost, but it's, it's, it amounts to kind of a visual obituary of sorts. Right. So it's pretty funny, in a way. Um, <laughs> but there, there was another line I thought that was pretty telling on this episode. I really liked, <laughs> this is pretty funny. One of the characters says, there's always a need for weapons. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, that was Salazar. And Salazar, yeah. When uh, when they were at the gate and the lady was oh, like, yeah. uh, "All I ask is that you leave your weapons at the door," and he's the only one that stays. And he kind of says, "Why?" And she says, uh, "You don't need them here. There's no need for them here." And then he says, "There's always a need for weapons." Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> no open carry here, you know. And he tries to get by with giving her a knife, and she just yeah. gives him this look. Like, you know, I know who you are, and 
So he gives him his gun, too, at that point. <laughs> Thanks, a little knife, pocket knife I got. Well, and then the prefigurement line towards the latter part of the episode, they're not really dead, so what are they? What comes next? Mm-hmm. That's a great line of prefigurement there. Yeah. Because it's forecasting not just the rest of the episode, but it's forecasting the rest of the series and what's coming next in civilization. Right. But really, they're kind of a devolution. You know, exactly, yeah. It's a mm-hmm. ret- retrogression or whatever. But yeah, People it's, losing their humanity in some way. It's that, ati- that atavistic impulse, once again. I mean, the yeah. whole series kind is like, about atavism in a way. Kind of like the Yahoos and... Um, Oh, uh, yeah, and Gulliver. Gulliver's travel. They're more like human types. <laughs> hurling, like hurling feces around. If, if somebody does that, I'm going to just bust out laughing when I'm watching it. Well, and they, um, you know, they have, um, they have the characteristics of humans still, but it's mm-hmm. not the intelligence. So right. It's all carried out on a very base level, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at what's going on in American politics right now. Mm-hmm. We're, we're kind of on a pretty base level ourselves. Right. <laughs> we, we, and I think that's why zombies are so popular right now. We have people who have trained themselves not to be concerned for the common good, just for basically their own appetite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just pure appetite just unleashed on yeah. them. On a very unsuspecting public. I mean, you know, small, small story. They closed the Ruston swimming pool this week, which has been open since the 30s, when it was built apparently by the WPA. And people are like, why should my taxes go so other people's kids can use the swimming pool? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah, they closed it. I heard that. Was it last night that they were announcing it? It's closed indefinitely, isn't it, or something? I think it's supposedly permanently closed. Or permanently, okay. But, you know, that's kind of a metaphor for all of our public institutions. We want Mm -hmm. to close them all down. And what's it going to be like after that? Well, I don't think zombie apocalypse is too far off. You know, once the roads are gone, once our food's gone, once our fuel is gone, uh, yeah. Let's see how you do. <laughs> yeah, well, and again, the you know, you have to, if we go back to the the way that the plague is unleashed on the public, there you have science run amok, which is a, you know, science without ethics. This is a constant theme of the series Fringe, Bruce, that we used right, to watch right. here three or four years ago. That was one of the major and themes of Fringe, was science run amok. science run amok. We don't know yet, and we may never know, but yeah, it could be. But this is, you know, what some scientists did in a lab. Uh, we just haven't seen that yet. Well, I see we've been going a little over an hour, uh, usually. Do y'all have anything else to point out? No, I'm, other than that, I'm really excited for the next episode. I think I if this is the last go. episode for this part of the year. Oh, yeah, what do they call it? The mid-season finale or something right. other? So, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, what, so when will it come back? If it's if day I'm after tomorrow, maybe it'll start back when it started the first time. Like we have a spring mini season and a fall mini season. Uh, oh, the way they've done it so far is the fall season precedes The Walking Dead, and then the spring season comes after their second half. So. Uh, oh. 
I don't know if they'll keep that scheduling. But yeah, so, what is it? Does this make six or seven episodes uh, so far? Yeah, I don't think they want to overlap. I think they want to try to get the audience to switch to this when the other one ends. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and I hope it keeps going. I like the series for all that we talk about it. We actually like the series, or we would. Yeah. Like- <laughs> Well, the, the real patriot, as in the real fan, has to be able to, you know, both appreciate the good and critique the not so good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's a sign of real devotion to a series. It's not just uncritical acceptance yeah. of everything they screen on the on the TV for you. We're not mindless zombies. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always a need for weapons, or in this case, analysis. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. Well. Uh, Thank you, guys, and uh, thanks to our audience, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Uh, this week we're running a little late getting it posted because Quinn and I were in the middle of finals <laughs> week at Tech, and uh, yeah. so that kind of had to take precedence. But when, when did you think this, So, or how many episodes have we seen already This for this uh, season? Has it been six um, or seven? I think six. Okay. I think so, too. Okay. But could be off. So we'll come back and do the remaining nine then, because it's 15, oh, yeah. 15 episodes this go around. Right. So for Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. You're up, Quinn. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Quinn And I'm Steve Payne. We want to thank all of you for listening to this week's episode of Fear the Walking Dead, a podcast. We hope that you'll come back next week and join us as we uh, go through next episode, and hopefully you'll get a little bit out of it. Bye for now.